Hello, and thanks for streaming The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. This is a fortnightly look at the technologies that are going to affect our lives in, wait for it, the near future. Education is vital if we're going to continue making advances, not only in coronavirus, but in all sorts of areas that seem to have been on hold since this whole wretched thing started. And one way of appealing to younger people to take up sciences is to take a slightly different approach. And I think it's fair to say my guest in this episode has done precisely that. Ballet dancer, physicist, astronaut. Not only are those several of the words I can spell, but they all apply to my guest. She graduated with magna cum laude honours in physics from Harvard and graduated with a PhD in atomic and laser physics from the University of Oxford. She also pursues a professional ballet career, previously with the Zurich Ballet, Boston Ballet, English National Ballet and Norwegian National Ballet. She was recently awarded Forbes 30 Under 30 and she was one of the 12 selected candidates to undergo rigorous astronaut selection on BBC Two's programme Astronauts, Do You Have What It Takes? They didn't even ask me, I'm quite offended by that. She urges that the arts and sciences should not be mutually exclusive, and she inspires young women around the world to pursue their dreams. She's been invited to be the featured speaker at the Forbes Women's Summit in New York, Princeton Physics Department, panellist for the US Embassy Women in STEM panel in London, and is featured in the bestseller Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. So, bit of a slow starter, but I'm sure she'll get the hang of it during the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Merritt Moore. Thank you so much. Thank you for okay. having me. Well, you're more than welcome. That's obviously quite a little CV to have, a little um, resume to have behind you. So what, when you were young, when you were a child, what did you want to be? You told your parents you wanted to be a ballet, dancing, physics, academic astronaut. Where did all this come from? <laughs> no, not at all. I can't actually remember ever thinking about trying to decide what I was going to be. I think it was all about what I was enjoying at the moment and... You know, it, when I started dancing, which was 13, which was fairly late, you know, I had dreams of becoming a professional ballet dancer. But at that age, I did realize how short lived that career was. So it was sort of however, however good I could get and for however long I could do it for, if that was even possible, even though at the time I was told that it wouldn't be possible because I started so late. And then in terms of physics, you know, I was also told that it was very tough. And so, I I think I focused on, okay, well, I really enjoy this. So I'm going to try to pursue it as much as I can and for as long as I can. And then we'll just, you know, figure it out from there. <laughs> and I'll okay, jump ship um, if I have okay, to. I know very little about ballet. I assume I've left it too late at 55 to start. But uh, when, <laughs> how long is the useful performing life of a ballet dancer until you have to move into tutoring or, or whatever? How long does the body hold up? A lot of the training starts probably around six or seven, and many of the professional dancers you see today in companies have left high school and gone to a full-time dance school where they're training probably eight hours a day for most of their young ages. And then they get in companies around 17, 18, 19, and a full long career is to your late 20s likely. I mean, there are rare cases where you'll see dancers in their 30s and handful in their 40s. Um, but that is currently kind of the situation in terms of the demographic 
of ages. So it is a little bit akin to the sporting world, perhaps. So that, that's just to get the... Oh, yeah, because you're beating up your body constantly from a young age. <laughs> um, and so I think that's one of the things I'm pushing against is, is that norm real? Is it necessary? And because I started late and because I've taken the nine years of physics in between there, I mean, I was dancing pretty much every other year professionally, but kind of taken that on and off nine years of physics. My thought process was, well, maybe I've preserved my body so I can do this a little bit longer. So that's currently where I'm at. The other thing, you, you've mentioned stereotypes, and uh, mm-hmm. you've spoken out an awful lot. You, you've spoken in, in public about uh, women and management, women in the IT industry. Mm-hmm. Why is that still an issue in 2021, and what can we do about it? I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? I think there's so much talk about it and so much discussion that you would assume that things would be changing, but it hasn't. Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of thoughts on that. I think one is probably, you know, the, the subconscious of that occurs at a very young age. Like, for instance, if I take my niece to the store and she gets super excited about this dinosaur lunchbox, and then she sees that it says like, four boys, you know, and you just see that look in her voice, like of disappointment. And, and there I am at the store trying to persuade her being like, girl, if you want that dinosaur lunchbox, you get that because half those dinosaurs were females and half of them were males. So, you know, this dinosaur lunchbox is equally just as um, viable for you. So I think there's obviously girls are tend to give them pink things, boys blue. So, and now with society and what's on the social media and news of what it's interesting how much young kids can pick up when it's so interesting I, how much we can construct i was re- i can't remember for the life of me where i was reading it but uh, a while ago i found out that this pink blue thing only arose in the early 20th century uh, before then uh, the traditions had been the other way around uh, pink was supposed to be a boy's color blue was uh, a girl's color so it's definitely something we've constructed and put together but with mass communications it's become yeah it's very um, prevalent really reinforced yeah and of course this this uh, yeah this also this idea which, when you spell it out, is quite sort of pernicious, uh, is that you are either a scientist or an artistic person. Mm-hmm. Your approach is different. Um, how much pushback did you get on that as a younger person? A lot. <laughs> I think from the dance world, and it was all from people who really cared about me and saw a ton of potential in me and wanted the best for me, right? So that was kind of the hard thing is that it was – dance mentors who were like, Mary, what are you, if you want to be a dancer, like focus on this. And from the physics side, you know, I had physics mentors who were saying, Mary, like, what are you doing dancing? Like focus on the physics. And then there's that kind of unsaid vibe of if someone finds out that you're pursuing another activity, say in the if science world, they, they find out how much I'm, I'm training for dance it's like, oh, she's kind of disloyal to physics. She doesn't really care about it. But if they found out that I was spending that time at a bar or hanging out with other peers, like they wouldn't, and spending the exact same time, they wouldn't have second thoughts about it. It was the fact that I was spending that time doing another passion. But if I was at home playing video games, 
that that was totally okay. It, it was just an interesting environment, and and to navigate it, I just I ended up just kind of hiding as much as I could. I obviously couldn't hide everything, but you know, a, a, the physics world didn't know that I was up at five a.m. training for four hours before I was in the lab, or that I was training late at night, but still putting in you know my. 10 to 15 hours of physics a day. Um, so there's something about yeah. energy levels though, isn't there? And also the sheer amount of attention and mental energy uh, mm-hmm. that you have to devote to these things. I, I mean, yeah. you make it sound as if it was just a matter of the time, but actually the time and energy you would spend uh, in training to be a dancer is very mm-hmm. different from the time and energy you might spend, uh, you know, concentrating very hard on drinking that beer in a bar or sitting very hard <laughs> on the sofa and uh, um, playing a video game. My daughter is actually uh, studying to become an opera singer. So I have some insight into the fact that it is a huge demand. So I'm wondering whether some of these people you describe were perhaps concerned that you, you might not have the capacity to be both a physicist and a professional ballet dancer because both uh, areas are so demanding. That's a very valid point. And I do say like after, and that's why I think I wouldn't be able to do like professional dance career when I was a professional ballet dancer in a company I had to take time off of school because at the end of the day, I mean, I'm dead. <laughs> I'm like crawling up the stairs. And so doing an email is really quite a struggle. And yeah, so it's managing that, which is really tricky. So yeah. And I, I feel like I'm in this kind of situation where I want to encourage and just open people's eyes that you can do both. Like it is possible to do science and arts and physics and ballet, you know, like anything though, to get to an exceptional level, it does take a lot of work. So I would say it's possible for everyone, but, you know, do people want, you know, it's up to an individual if they want to put in that much work though. Do you want to sound as confident as my interviewee in this episode? If you talk to the press or other media, are you worried you'll be misquoted, or they'll just publish their story and not yours? Clapperton Media Associates can help with coaching. Drop me a note, guy at clapperton.co.uk, and we'll arrange a time for an exploratory call. Now, back to the podcast. I'm just wondering how much I'm thinking aloud here. It's not a question mm-hmm. prepared. Uh, I'm wondering how much physics there is in ballet, uh, not only in things like set design, which has got to be, there's got to be some engineering in there, um, but you've got people throwing themselves around the stage quite a lot. Uh, that's a technical term, throwing themselves around. So I've been studying ballet just to, to <laughs> they sling themselves around and, um, you, you know, you've got to be able to understand weights, forces, all that sort of thing. Is that just instinctive or do you think there is a lot of maths, physics in there? There's absolutely tons. And I didn't think so until I realized how intuitive it had become. So because I started dancing late, I've had to spend a lot of time focused on visualization techniques and and practicing that way um, because I couldn't be in the studio all the time. And having that physics background is just so helpful because right before a pirouette, I understand, okay, the position of my feet, like the how far apart my feet are, 
will affect the torque of this turn and where I place my arms, whether or not they're wide and broad, like the wider I keep my back, that affects my moment of inertia and my balance of like toppling over or not. The position of my arms and I can visualize where the center of mass is. And also for leaps, I've done a gazillion projectile motion equations and and I, I can visualize, yeah, at what angle do I need to kick my leg off the ground in order to get the maximum height and time in the air um, to form the leap before I come down. And I close my eyes before a combination and I just visualize it and then I'll do it. And it became quite intuitive. I didn't really realize I was doing it. And there's so many other things like, for instance, in dance, there's a thing called the grand mall, which is literally just kick your leg up in the air and bring it down. And the way it's taught is like you use your muscle to muscle your leg up and then you muscle your leg down. But as someone who was uh, didn't have that much time in the studio because I was in the physics lab, I was like, okay, how are we going to figure this out? So I can use as little muscle as possible. And I would use Newton's third law, like every action has an opposite and equal reaction. So I'd be like, okay, if I push down into the earth, the earth is going to push back with the same and equal amount of force and will then help me lift up my leg. And then I'll use the restoring force to bring my leg back into position. And just little tricks like that made dance, I think, infinitely easier. Like I don't, I really generally don't think I would have made it as a professional ballet dancer if I didn't have that physics background because I found visualization for me, the way I've been able to excel in dance has been probably 85% mental. And a large part of that was visualizing and understanding the mechanics of how to get the maximum technique with as little effort as possible, but using the laws of nature to help me out. That must have been quite a help for your colleagues, whoever it was who designed the robots that you've been dancing with. Um, I've never a question I've never asked anybody on this podcast before is tell me about dancing with robots. It's been a blast. I didn't know quarantine or lockdown could be so fun. Um, I'm I'm very grateful. So I yeah I was dancing with I guess I began before. COVID. I was dancing with Norwegian National Ballet. I was performing Swan Lake and the Bidare. And I graduated from my PhD about a year earlier than that. And I was thoroughly, I was so grateful to be back in a dance studio because it was risky to do my PhD in my, in the prime 20s. So it was amazing to be back in a company, but I was missing the lab and I was missing just exploring and experimenting. And so had this opportunity, uh, met someone who was like, oh, I work with robots. And that's when I got introduced to universal robotics. And they, it's, they're quite easy to work with. And so in between performances, after rehearsals, I'd go rush over and hang out with the robot and just test out moves and explore movement. I was curious how human movement mapped onto a robot and how robot movement mapped onto humans and was curious to explore, you know, th there's research that says that 
90% of communication is nonverbal and predominantly body language. And so I was curious to explore, okay, but does body language have to come from a human? Can it come from a different, like this non, this, like this six jointed body thing, right? Like that doesn't have two arms and no legs, but can it mimic personality traits or feelings or emotions or movement such as a humans and from there got invited to be one of the first artists in residence at Harvard art lab to explore that. And that was right before COVID. So that was in January and February of 2020. And then COVID happened. And I mean, all of my dance gigs got canceled and it was quite, I mean, devastating still for the dance world. But I just remember being like, okay, every, with every challenge, there's like an opportunity. And what, what am I going to do during this time? And I was just thinking, I was like, hmm, curious. I was just working with a robot because who knew that could be my only potential dance partner for a very long time. Um, because I suppose it also gives the opportunity to uh, make sure that your um, partner is, I was going to say sterilized. That's not a good uh, word. Uh, uh, COVID free. Deep cleansed, should we say. Yes, um, yes. And I'm just wondering whether this is going to have an impact on entertainment in the future, whether you could see uh, robotic entertainers um, uh, being, uh, you know, a major part. I mean, when I was growing up, it was all about uh, people pretending to be robots. And mm-hmm. you can, uh, that tells you a lot about the uh, programs I was watching, the films I was watching. But I'm wondering whether AI is going to um, uh, be with us permanently as part of the entertainment area. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think that human and machine interaction is going to be a huge part of the future. And I think that there's a lot of fear around it now um, just because it's an unknown. It's a, you know, it's a figuring out what does that look like, but like anything, I don't think that human machine interaction is going to replace. I think that there's a fear around it replacing human, human interaction or anything that we have now. Um, But I, I don't think it's going to replace. It's just going to be, a different tool for us to explore and to use to express ourselves. Like I think if we look back at painters, they they became so worried and, and just devastated when the camera first came out. Photography. They're like, oh my God, our jobs are over. Like no one's going to appreciate this. Like why? We're like, we're not going to exist. Um, but I think it was just, no, it, it, I think both coexisted quite well. It was just a, tool photography became a tool a different lens a different way that people could express themselves and and painters were just as relevant and actually were given freedom to be more expressive and and less literal so i I think the same goes now with exploring movement and exploring the connect you know collaboration between human and machine human and ai Yes, I suppose when radio first started in the 1920s, people were worried it was going to kill the theatre. Then apparently television was going to kill um, kill radio. And what's actually happened is these things have found their new niche. So I suppose, mm-hmm. um, you know, the same way that Pixar uh, motion pictures haven't killed traditional animation, uh, they mm-hmm. just added another thing that uh, people can do. Mm-hmm. This is a fascinating area. We could go. I could talk about this for ages. But where is it taking you personally? I mean, do you see yourself dancing with robots more, or is the, you know, are you going to still have that? Well, you obviously will still have the limitations of being a human being who will age eventually. 
Well, certainly age. But yeah, the future is, for me, is definitely with robots. What I love about it is that it's fascinating because I do feel like it's pushing the boundaries of art and just changing. And it's a, it's a new journey and a new path. But also, likewise, I find that the art is equally being just as beneficial to the science and the research. So what I love is working with roboticists who are at Harvard or in India or all over the world and discussing what's the future of the robotics and how, you know, in questioning and, and poking them to be like, hey, you guys, can we make it do this? Or like, how do we explore that? Or and various things. And I mean, what I would love is, you know, publishing papers, but from a arts kind of incentive and showing that actually the two art and science together, you know, enhance both fields. I think I've always shied away from combining art and science because I really cared about the quality. I wanted it. I didn't want to lower the quality. So for instance, sometimes art and science are combined and, and it's not as great. Like it's kind of dumbed down on both fronts, but I, I really want, if combined, I want them both to be even more excellent. Um, so striving for excellence. And so with that, yeah, it's pursuing the science, the research and on the art side. And, and then the, this long-term goal is wanting to go to the moon. So for me right now I'm playing, it's a playful research of dancing with robots, but it's the long-term goal is to gain that expertise and understanding and in intuition about robotics so that, you know, in the future, I'm a more viable candidate to go to the moon. Um, I, I had yeah. a feeling the astronaut stuff would come back in somewhere. <laughs> Normally at this stage, I ask people uh, where they can get in touch with you, where they can uh, find out more about you. Obviously, this has been one of the worst subjects to cover uh, on an audio podcast that people can't actually see because by now everybody wants to see you dancing with a robot. Are there yeah. videos? Um, do you have a website? Where can people find out more about you? And above all, see some of what you've been talking about. Oh, thank you so much. I post the videos on LinkedIn. I'm at Merritt Moore, um, M-E-R-R-I-T-T, Moore. And on um, social media, so on Twitter and Instagram, more on Instagram, I'm Physics on Point with an E at the end. And my website is physicsonpoint.com. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Merritt Moore, thank you very much for joining me and very good luck with whatever you end up doing on whichever particular territory, earthly or otherwise, you happen to be on. <laughs> thank you very much. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. Don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk or my media training site at remotemediatraining.com and especially some of Merritt's videos. I'll be back in two weeks' time. <laughs>